0: As an author, Walter Isaacson has exposed us to the lives of Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, and Benjamin Franklin. Now he's focused on the biomedical revolution that is taking on a new importance amid the coronavirus crisis. Today, Mr. Isaacson introduces us to the new technological frontier of CRISPR, the science of editing the human genome to elaborate or erase certain genetic traits. It's a fascinating new field that paints an intriguing future without cancer or disease but it's also one that raises many moral and ethical questions about how much power the human race can have over their biological futures. Let's listen in.
1: Uh, I'm delighted to welcome everyone again to one of these No uh, Labels conversations where, uh, and I'm going to be really brief an introduction. We've got a great um, guest today. Uh, I'm fortunate to consider and follow uh, Walter Isaacs and my friend who got his Uh, biography. Uh, He's really had a remarkable life, and there's a lot more good to go. Um, uh, Really a public intellectual, a man of letters, a man of action, and just overall a good man, a really uh, warm and uh, fascinating personality. Uh, He's going to talk to us today in the context of COVID-19 pandemic, of course, about the third great innovation uh, revolution. And I would be remiss uh, as his friend in introducing him if I didn't say uh, one great way to learn about the first two innovation revolutions is through truly magnificent books, that uh, biographies that Walter has done on uh, Albert Einstein and on Steve Jobs. Without further ado, Walter Isaacson.
2: Thank you, Joe. That's uh, very generous of you and very nice. I do think that one of the things that will come out of this pandemic is it's going to hasten the transition to the third great scientific and innovation revolution of the modern age. The first was obviously a revolution based on physics. It sort of stemmed from Einstein's 1905 papers on quantum theory and relativity, uh, but then along with the work of other physicists, Like everything, basic science is the seed corn that leads to great innovations. That's what Vannevar Bush, the great head of, uh, founder of the National Science Foundation, said. And you look at the revolution in physics that happened in the first half of the 20th century, and it led to a lot of the innovations that defined that period. Everything from nuclear power and atom bombs to semiconductors and transistors space travel GPS a time of physics in 1950 you begin to see the second great innovation revolution And it really comes about Because of three different inventions that surprisingly were invented separately. The first was the microchip Uh, the second was the computer which was not originally done uh, with semiconductors. And the third was the internet or the packet switched network. And uh, when those three inventions came together, they were all pretty much invented in the 1950s, but they don't connect with one another until the 1970s. When you get personal computers, the internet, the Gore act of 1992 eventually opens the internet so that anybody uh, from you know, commercial to just the average citizen can get on. You have a digital revolution based on two fundamental concepts. One is that all information can be done in binary digits, which we call bits. In other words, you can just do zero, one, zero, one, in any picture, any words, any ideas, any audio. Everything that's information can be done in bits. And secondly that a circuit with on-off switches could process any logical sequence. And uh, that's what all computer algorithms are. So that all comes together for the great digital revolution. I teach at Tulane here, of course, on the history of the digital revolution. I wrote a book about it called The Innovators. And for most of the past 20, 30 years, the people you and I know were the hotshot entrepreneurial students and young people, the ones who really wanted to uh, be innovators and uh, entrepreneurs, the ones that were mentored by people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Steve Case, all went in to some form of the information technology revolution. I'm writing a new book on uh, biotechnology. And as I go around to conferences, even before the coronavirus for the past couple of years, whether I'd be at Harvard or Stanford or Berkeley or Tulane or any of the conferences, I realize that biology is the new technology. The coolest geeks and most entrepreneurial students are not studying digital code. They're studying the genetic code, the code of life. and. I think you're going to see the next wave of innovations come from that. Now this gets radically Accelerated in a time of CRISPR The only labs that are open at Harvard and MIT and at Berkeley and at Stanford and Tulane now Are the biotech labs all of them given special dispensation so that they can work on sequencing the gen- the RNA of uh, the coronavirus figuring out its structure Figuring out ways that you can attack it or detect it All of that is happening and even the volunteers on campus the people who are in computer science Who want to stay on campus and be involved? They're now in the biology and biochemistry and biotech labs It's also created a phenomenon that I've just started to notice in the past week Which is when we came out of World War II, Vannevar Bush the guy I mentioned earlier Talked about how we were going to have a three-way Sort of consortium in america that was going to lead innovation and There'd be three legs to the stool. It would be government it would be Universities and it would be private industries and that's why after the manhattan project. They didn't open any more grand government labs. They made grants to either places uh, that were universities or places like rand or xerox park or IBM research centers that were corporate. And this combination of corporate guidance, university research and government funding and contracting helped develop everything, most famously the internet, but everything from lasers to microchips to you know whatever were parts of the digital revolution. Now, DARPA is spending most of its funding recently on Biotech even before coronavirus the safe genes product uh, project the genetic engineering project These were the biggest funding things that DARPA has been doing now one of the big failures as you all know in the past month and a half is that the Centers for Disease Control and the rest of the US government totally mishandled fumbled the notion of doing massive wide scale testing. It didn't adopt the regular WHO tests. The tests that it did do had uh, flawed assays. It's taken a long time for it to come on. Here in Louisiana, about one fifth of the tests now being done are done by the government or the CDC lab. Instead, coming into that breach, what has happened is academic labs as well as commercial labs like Quest but academic labs have stepped up. Uh, Starting around March 12th, March 13th, when universities were shutting down their facilities, Jennifer Doudna, who runs the uh, uh, Innovative Genetic Institute at Berkeley, one of the co-discoverers of CRISPR, she got dispensation, not only for her, but UCSF, other universities in the region to keep the labs open not only to do research in the coronavirus, but to just figure out fast ways to do testing. Testing for the coronavirus is not all that difficult, despite what the CDC seems to have tried to show us. And so they're doing now two thousand tests a day at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, a thousand tests per day in the labs of Berkeley. Done for local area hospitals and three days ago Tulane stepped up and started doing a thousand tests a day Down here in New Orleans. And so when you see a lapse by government Into the breach have come the academics And it's interesting because it changes the nature of what it is to be an academic. No longer. Are you just um, Saying I'm doing basic research. I'll publish it in a journal Six months from now and it'll take three months to get refereed Instead you're actually engaged on the front lines This is the only war that we've ever fought in which biochemists and medical researchers and doctors are the people on uh, the front lines So I think that's One aspect of moving us to this biotech revolution Another is that the most significant innovation so far in the biotech revolution is simple ways to do genetic editing. For good or for bad, the notion that we can edit our genes, design our children's, have CRISPR babies, is through this notion of CRISPR, which is a technology that Jennifer Doudna at Berkeley, Emmanuel Charpentier in Vienna, Fong Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard all Simultaneously invented at the end of 2012. That's just an easy Programmable way to edit the DNA of humans or any other organism the interesting thing about CRISPR editing Is that as I said earlier like any innovation it often springs from the seed corn of basic curiosity-driven scientific research CRISPR sprang from research that was being done in the period of 2005 to 2010 just out of pure basic curiosity in bacteria Because the longest-running battle on this planet and the most brutal battle on this planet has been for three billion years the fight of bacteria to fight off viruses that invade bacteria, known as bacteriophages. This happens trillions of times a minute across this planet, is this war between bacteria and viruses. Of course, when people started studying that, discovering the notion of how bacteria fight off viruses, we didn't know we were going to be in a coronavirus phase. Phase we did not know that we were going to transform this basic science into a gene editing tool But the way that bacteria fight off Viruses is that they detect the RNA or sometimes DNA Sequences of the invading virus. They make a small copy of it They have repeated clusters in their own DNA that show copies of all the viruses that have attacked in the past. And in between these repeated sequences, they're clustered, repeated, interspaced sequences. That's where we would get the name CRISPR. They're enzymes. Enzymes are simply molecules of protein that know how to do things. An enzyme can cut RNA, an enzyme can cause a reaction. It's basically a catalyst. It's how everything that happens in our body happens. Is because of enzymes that catalyze a reaction so what CRISPR is is simply a record of viruses that have attacked bacteria and the enzymes that are interspaced with it so if that virus attacks again the bacteria can chop it up at a specific spot on the genetic material of the virus well who knew that that would be helpful even three or four months ago people doing CRISPR research They weren't focused on the fact that we were going to need to learn from bacteria, which have this 3 billion year old uh, trick that they've been using. What we did know about CRISPR was that you could repurpose it so that you could have the CRISPR system that said, here's a piece of genetic material we want to target. There would be an RNA guide that would target that genetic material and an enzyme that would cut it. And change it and that has been used and was being used for genetic engineering in humans as I said since the end of 2012 when it was simultaneously uh, Invented around the world. So CRISPR is offering us two things a way to edit our genes But also a way to understand the tricks that other organisms especially bacteria have used for billions of years longer than we have to fight off each of these viruses. So we with these technologies, not just CRISPR, but technolo- biotechnologies like CRISPR, we'll be able to identify any virus that comes along. These CRISPR identification tests that detect the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, have already this week been deployed. The normal test for testing coronavirus, as you know, takes a day, sometimes three or four days to get the results back. They're known as PCR tests. It simply means you got to grow the virus into a large enough number of the virus that you can see whether it exists or not. But with the CRISPR test, it takes about 12 minutes because it just goes in. If it sees the genetic sequence, it cuts it and a little phosphorescent molecule glows. It's a type of thing that we can imagine by the end of the year Will be like a pregnancy test at a walgreens or cvs. It can be done in a, in a box uh, Another thing that this genet- all of these genetic and biotech tools will be able to do Is therapeutics to figure out how are we going to fix these? How are we going to treat? a particular virus and so those type of thera- therapies Probably are not going to be available for at least six months, and then they're going to have to go through clinical trials. So it'll be a year before they're in place. But they will be engineered molecules that know how to treat uh, this particular coronavirus. And then the third thing that sounds like science fiction, that's really down the road, is that all viruses, in order to attack a human cell, have to find a way to latch onto the cell and that's through a receptor There's a receptor in the cells that allows a virus to get in to break through the membrane of the cell If you were a really good genetic engineer You could re-engineer a human cell not to have The receptor for a particular virus and not only could you do it? In Certain cells in living humans you can do it in reproductive cells in sperm egg zygotes early stage embryos and say i'm going to edit it so that The children and all of their descendants and eventually all of the human race will not have A receptor for any particular virus you're trying to get rid of if that sounds like Weird science fiction that's way down the road. Think back for a second About a year and a half ago in November of 2018. The world was shocked When at a conference in Hong Kong a Chinese doctor named He Zhang Qi Announced that he had engineered the first twin CRISPR babies it was all sorts of outrage. People said, we weren't really ready for it. It may not be ethically correct. People denounced him. Even the Chinese now have him under house arrest, and he was uh, barred from medicine for having done that. But what precisely was he doing when he did those CRISPR babies, those first two CRISPR babies in November 2018? What he was doing and what he did do because Lulu and Nana, those two twins are still alive. What he did with those CRISPR babies was he wanted to eliminate the receptor for HIV, which is simply the virus, as you know, that causes AIDS. And he was able to do so. Whether or not we think it was premature or he should have done it, we already have a proof of concept test that you can edit the human race To eliminate receptors for certain viruses, I hope I've given some indication of where the technology is, but also helped justify my contention that we're entering in our era of innovation, a new era of innovation that will be based on biotechnology and will form that consortium again of private industry, academic labs, and if we're lucky, uh, smart federal uh, research. So uh, Nancy or Joe, I'll end with that. I've never done one of these before, so I've either talked way too long or way too short, but thanks.
1: That was fascinating. Uh, um, I'll just say something quickly and and ask if you want to respond, Uh, because you're talking about really a whole new world. Um, So during my time in the Senate and for the last five years, as co chair of a, a commission on biodefense, which has been housed at the uh, Hudson Institute with, with Tom Ridge, uh, we've, dealt, we, we, we've been really concerned about um, a possible viral uh, pandemic such as we're experiencing now or um, a broad scale uh, influenza pandemic. And one of the challenges I found in both cases was how do we um, motivate the, the tremendous uh, the power of the innovation sector of our economy? I was thinking particularly well, about pharma and biotech uh, to, um, to develop broad-scale, universal even, antiviral, and anti-influenza vaccines. And it's, it was very hard um, Financially, to, because there wasn't a, clearly a market, I guess that's what we kept hearing. So we created something called Bardo when I was in the Senate, which creates some federal money going uh, to incentivize this kind of activity. But um, of course, now because we're living through and so threatened by this pandemic, there's money been appropriated and. Um, presumably that problem will not be there. And public-private partnerships, a little bit like the Vannevar Bush uh, model, uh, will, will come up again. But, so I wanted to share that with you and say, now that we're, we've, we've experienced this nightmare mm-hmm. and there is the beginning of a substantial amounts of federal money flowing, how do you think we would best, not just now in this crisis, but over the long term, Um, uh, really Spend it in a way that uh, in in the new age of biotech in the middle of the third great innovation revolution What's the best way to recreate those uh, what we used to call public-private partnerships?
2: Let me start by what the situation is now There's a lot of money going into this mainly as I said because of DARPA something you would probably know the budget well they have a safe genes pro- project and other genetic and biotech products that, including one about a gene drive, which is supposedly a defensive thing for the United States, but obviously it could be an offensive weapon. Well you could use this to create a pathogen, to create a virus, to create a mosquito that carried that virus, and to make it so that mosquito, took over the population of China or something or vice versa. China could create one that could come here. So obviously the Defense Department has a whole lot at stake at figuring this out. It was four years ago that in the National Threat Assessment that you know well, Joe, uh, it was first put in that biotech weapons could be weapons of mass destruction and they could be engineered and that helped spur DARPA Funding for it. The NIH and the National Science Foundation have also been good in this. But I'm going to raise a broader issue about allocation of funding. You're probably one of the few people, Joe, who knows what the Buy Dole Act was. You remember that? I do. And that allowed academic researchers who came up with brilliant discoveries, and they did it using federal grants. It used to be that the federal government then had the right, total right, to that intellectual property. If a DARPA grant or an NSF grant created CRISPR gene editing. For reasons that I think were good, but you can argue it either way, Birch Bayh and Bob Dole created this act that said, no, from now on, if you make such an invention, you get to have the intellectual property rights. If you're Jennifer Doudna in Berkeley and you do CRISPR, you get the patent, or at least you get the chance to fight with Fong Jang and Eric Lander for the patent when they filed for the patent. Even though both were funded by federal dollars. That was allowed, that was a way to help fund academic research. Because once you get a patent like that, as the Genentech experience showed 30 years ago, you can fund big academic labs that way. The other thing is. There's a move afoot, and I'd love to hear some of you all's thoughts on this, of people saying, well, you shouldn't be allowed to patent these things, that these type of discoveries should not be proprietary. If you do that, if drug companies aren't not allowed to race to find a cure and then patent the cure and profit from it, I keep asking both people at the drug companies or people at Berkeley, will that slow down? Research and development if you don't know that there's a pot of gold in there If you succeed because 90 percent of the time you're going to fail But if you succeed you'll have a patent and you can monetize that I can see the arguments in various ways, but I think Given our system It's best to allow people to patent to have intellectual property Maybe every now and then especially in a case like coronavirus do what MIT, Harvard, and Berkeley have done, which is to say, we're we're gonna keep the intellectual property, but we're gonna license it for free because this is a national emergency. But I think more than just saying where should the next National Science Foundation grant go, we have to get this system right of how do we allow pharmaceutical companies not to be demonized and allow them to make a profit when they discover something, and how to allow academic labs. To do translational medicine in other words, not just basic research But they do things that will translate from the bench to the bedside and they can make a profit off it as well So i'd love to hear some thoughts about that because you know, you all I assume are very sophisticated business people As you probably know you could get a big round of applause whether you're donald trump or bernie sanders with a populist pitch that the pharmaceutical companies and drug companies should not be allowed to profit the way they do from their discoveries.
3: Hi, uh, this is Mike Frickless. Um, so, I, I have a uh, one question, which is that a lot of researchers working in artificial intelligence and otherwise have talked about how in other countries the access to patient data is greatly accelerating their ability to make these kinds of changes. And I'm wondering whether some accommodation couldn't be made uh, to some of our really antiquated privacy legislation in the healthcare area. Absolutely. That could facilitate, uh, you know, the expeditious use of information um, that could help, you know, solve some of these
4: problems and keep us at the forefront in terms of- Michael,
2: I mean, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, absolutely. One of the biggest barriers to great uh biotech breakthroughs both in cancer and in genetics is HIPAA, the Privacy Act, the Health Privacy Act. We all love HIPAA, but in China they don't have HIPAA. They don't have a Health Privacy Act. So they have what is the new oil in this day and age, and that's big data, huge amounts of data. And they know on any particular cancer, any patient who's tried things, what's been tried to fight them, how that worked, what their genetic sequencing was. And when you massively process all of this data, you end up discovering new treatments for cancer, new drugs, genetic engineering, whatever. Eric Lander, who I deeply admire, who runs the Broad Institute at Harvard, MIT, Has a project that deserves it's been like three years old and i've been trying to tell them to publicize it But it's simple. It's just called count me in And I just had a knee operation. This is minor But instead of all those hipaa privacy things I wanted to sign something that said count me in take all the data Whatever painkiller I use or whatever. It's especially important for people who have cancer and have had their gene sequence. That's the real trove of data we need. But if you go to your hospital, wherever you are, and you have your gene sequence, if you're treated from cancer, the data from that is not put in some publicly available database. And it's very hard, even though you can become an organ donor by just checking some box somewhere, it's very hard for you to say, I don't need this much privacy count me in put my data in this database one reason is hipaa another is that the data is the lifeblood i'll say the trove that each hospital system has down here we've got a big system called Auctioner. i know it very well and i talk about this and they say yeah but we want that data and we share it with the mayo clinic and they pay us and we're on epic but we Figure out what we're going to share. Well, that's fine for people to try to monetize that The hospital systems to monetize the data, but it would be a lot better If we had a national system that wasn't so knee-jerk privacy-oriented that had protection so that your insurance company can't go into the data and change your rates or something Uh, but that said we're going to have to compete with china. So we're going to have to have all the data we need now We'll never be like china. I mean if you you know, their their data includes facial recognition anybody with you know Infected with the coronavirus They would probably tracking them with all the cameras they have Whereas we don't even use cell cell phone data to track uh, Potential carriers of coronavirus. So we'll never catch up with china nor should we I mean, I like all ten of our Bill of Rights amendments, but I think we have to get over the hump of being so privacy obsessed. Uh, Michael, can
5: ma- I? Uh, <clears throat> no. Am I allowed to jump in? Go
4: right yeah. ahead.
5: Michael wanted uh, to follow up. Uh, two two points. One, thank God for hearing what I just heard. Um, uh, to me, HIPAA has been a huge enemy. For many years, and and there are a number of people on this call who know me, and what I'd like to say for you, Joe, and you, Walter, and everyone else, I am a cancer survivor. I am alive today because of uh, certain treatments that worked when the first ones didn't. I was near death. Um, This is now years down the road. Um, My greatest enemy in all this experience has been HIPAA. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm, a, I'm open book. Anybody who wants to know should be able to know. So that's, that's point one. Point two is I would like to hear you um, talk for a minute about how we marry the legal uh, structure, the, 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 the development of laws, and the uh, medical ethics Issues connected to CRISPR and the and the and the development of our, our bio knowledge going forward. Well, what do you have a, any comment about that? I see those are as two constraints and difficulties that are associated with it.
2: Yeah, I think using genetic engineering technology is perfectly accepted and is regulated by the FDA and other you know good agencies when it comes to making edits in a individual patient. It's already being done to help cure patients of sickle cell anemia by editing their stem cells so they make healthy blood. It's just being done now for congenital blindness where you can edit in the body, you know, an eye cell. Where the red line is right now, the red line is the germline. The germline, as you probably know, is when you make an edit that will be inherited. In other words, if you change my stem cells because I've got sickle cell, my children will still have sickle cell. But if you want to edit my reproductive cells so they will not, uh, uh, you can change the human race. That's what happened in 2018 with Jiankui doing the CRISPR babies in China. It wasn't as if he edited an individual patient to be immune to the HIV virus. He edited reproductive cells so that children were born that no longer have those genes and their children and their children, etc So we need some legal and regulatory structure that says when do you edit and make inheritable edits? That to me is the thing we have to focus on It's difficult because you would intuitively say Yes, let's edit out a receptor to a virus Especially those of you who know, nancy weckler or others You'd say, Huntington's disease, that's a simple, single gene mutation that's fatal and gruesome. Let's cut it out in all reproductive cells. Anybody with Huntington's, you should be allowed to edit so your children won't get this disease. Tay-Sachs, sickle cell anemia, I give you cystic fibrosis, give you 30 major diseases that are simple mutations you could edit and our children wouldn't get them. In my opinion, we probably should allow that once it's safe. But once you start doing that, you can also start, it's a gray area or a slippery slope. You can say, I want to increase the memory capacity because we want to do things to prevent Alzheimer's and dementia. If you do that, you can enhance memory. You can easily enhance muscle mass and height. There's simple genes that regulate how much muscle you're going to do already cows are being born with this new genetic engineering to be bigger, stronger cows. So if you want, I mean, I'm looking at you, Mel, I assume your kids aren't linebackers in the NFL, but if you wanted to have kids and grandkids who would be great football players, you could make those genetic edits. And the question is, are we going to allow, as a society, people to genetically engineer their children to be taller or blonder or redhead or smarter, have a higher IQ, difficult thing, but you can do components of IQ like memory and cognitive skills. Are we going to allow that? And if we allow it, are we going to allow it so that you can go to the genetic supermarket and choose, but you got to pay, at which point the rich will be able to buy good genes for their children, the poor won't. And the divide in our society will not only be widened and exacerbated it will be encoded into our genes There's a great novel about it Most of you read it in high school and have forgotten it But that's what brave new world the aldous huxley novel is about Is different tiers of society or the movie gattaca is about it as well And the question is are we going to regulate this genetic engineering technology? at least for our generation, I'm looking at the, everybody on this screen with the exception of Nancy and Liz, uh, who are much younger than the rest of us. Uh, we're only going to have to worry about simple genetic edits like Huntington's disease, Tay-Sachs, sickle cell. But in 20 years, we're going to have the capacity to do genetic editing that will take a lot of moral processing power, not just biological.
6: Hey, uh, Walter, it's Mark Lieberman. I had a a question or a comment going back to your Baidol reference in 1980. There were a couple of successive pieces of legislation in 86 and in uh, 1989, 1990, which brought in all the DOE labs and all the Defense Department labs, which allowed those labs, once it declassified the technology, to exclusively license those technologies and IP um, to whatever industry that they fell into. So I suspect that all the DARPA work that's happening now in biotech, you can exclusively license to some of these biotech companies under those under those laws. But the idea of being able to have a rapid response and being able to manufacture uh, vaccines and test kits is something that, and it's not a short-term solution. Certainly, what we're confronting now, but certainly is something that I would suspect that uh, the Hill and the folks in the administration should look into. But that regimen of legislation may already exist
2: yeah well thanks I'm I'm not an expert in uh, intellectual property development uh, but I, I, I'll start looking into that
7: well I guess I I'd uh, like to comment I appreciate what you said about patents and uh, it's, you know there might be a longer discussion here but I'm uh, I'm Bob Zeidman I'm a, an expert in intellectual property as an inventor, entrepreneur, and expert witness in, and consultant to IP litigation. But you know, it might be interesting, no lab, this might be an area that no labels would might, might wanna look into because uh, patent issues uh, are one of the few issues that both parties seem to have um, strong feelings about on, on both sides of whether we need to protect intellectual property more. But I'll just point out that, you know, mostly agreeing with what you've said, that companies need to have intellectual property and patents to uh, protect their investments. And while there are a few bad players, there's a lot of misunderstanding that's promoted by certain companies about intellectual property. And so one thing I'll just point out is that the federal government has the right to infringe on any patent that they want to. Um, You you can't, uh, you can't Sue the federal government for infringement. So in an emergency situation like this, the government has the ability to distribute or license or take a license forcefully uh, for any uh, Intellectual property any drugs that are manufactured So, you know when people bring that up as an issue, uh, it's really a non-issue Yeah, but what
2: happened with um It's joe manchin's daughter. I should not blame it on him, but with uh, the EpiPen, was it, where, uh, does anybody yeah. know that case?
1: Yeah, My, Mylan, is it the name of My the land. company? Yeah.
7: So there's a few, I, I can I can talk about that a little bit. I know a little bit about it, but there are some misunderstandings about that. I mean, certainly a, a drug company that has uh, exclusive license, exclusive patents can raise the prices to anything they want. Um, but it, when it's brought to the public's attention, there's usually terrible publicity. But the, um, the guy who was running that company with the EpiPens, he was actually uh, indicted not for raising prices. People have a misunderstanding about that. He ended up shifting funds from his previous company to the company that made the EpiPens, kind of a more interesting, complex situation. Even though his investors ended up making a lot of money off the EpiPen, Uh, He was indicted because he uh, illegally transferred funds without telling his investors to this new company.
2: Well, I think uh, at the very least, we can say, you know, there's sometimes bad actors in the field.
7: I'll just say, and then I'll let you, you know, you know, it's it's your show. I'll just say that, um, you know, unfortunately, Congress and the courts have been passing some bad restrictions on patents because of a few bad actors and some myths about bad actors. And I think the the issue is that no matter what laws we have, there will always be people who find ways of skirting them, but it doesn't mean the laws are bad. It means that they need to be enforced better.
2: Right. I'll uh, use this as a platform to say that sometimes when there's a huge national emergency or something like this, you want some collaboration among the public and foundations and academic researchers and drug companies, the government, whatever It's like a war effort and this should be like a war effort and the last time this happened was in 1952 when uh, polio was just totally ravaging especially, you know, well around this country and When Salk, as well as Sabin, but let's take the Salk design, he was able to come up with a process for making a vaccine. Uh, He didn't patent it. In fact, he said a very famous quote because it was simply, he hadn't really engineered something. It was just a process for a living virus. Uh, He said, well, can you patent the sun?" Meaning we shouldn't be allowed to patent Natural process. We shouldn't be allowed to patent natural processes. I think that's wrong I do think we should be And the supreme court has ruled that you can patent even genes if you Do something to take them out of their context and use them in a different way That said the way we did the sock vaccine was the government was involved They helped figure out the use and licensing of the intellectual property foundations were involved universities and the public it was the march of dimes paid I think for most of the clinical testing of the soft vaccine and it was a way to say we're gonna all fight this together publicly you don't have to do that for every baldness drug that comes along and things like an asthma pin probably fall in the middle as to whether or not you know it's Something that the public just needs to have, but whatever your views are, certainly the coronavirus is at the far extreme where we should mobilize, you know, academics, industry, the public. We should be having another March of Dimes to do this testing, so that when the thing comes along, it'll be like the salt vaccine in 1953, 1954, whatever. It was basically free. You know, you didn't have to pay for it. Kids just lined up to take those sugar cures. Walter? Oh, my friend Bill. Yeah, hi. Uh, it's great great to see you uh,
3: in nice sunny circumstances, even though uh, your governor has made it clear that your state is facing an emergency. Yeah. We're- uh, and uh, when I when I listen to you, uh, the famous first sentence of A Tale of Two Cities yeah. Comes to mind. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, because in my view, what we're looking at right now is a combination of you know a biotech success and a governance failure. Mm-hmm. And that bring that brings me that brings me to my point. Uh, and that is I listened with amazement and great enthusiasm to what you were saying about biotech and where we are on the cutting edge of it. But history suggests that every time there is a technological breakthrough, governance and regulation lag much too far behind. And as a result, there is an interim period of, of great destructive disruption on a number of different fronts. And we go through this cycle over and over and over again. Can you help us think about how to narrow the gap between technological progress on the one hand and the identification of the dark side of that progress and the attempt to restrict it or minimize it? Because if not, I'm afraid that this genie is gonna get out of the bottle and In the genie of
2: gene editing or
3: well, uh, well, for example, gene editing. Uh, and you don't have to read a lot of dystopian novels to know, you know, to know what can happen under the under those circumstances. And similarly, you know, anytime there's a great technological breakthrough, it creates new concentrations of wealth and power, right? I think we can learn something from Facebook, can't we? Right, something that generated social bonds has also worked to weaken our democracy. So, how do we think about this at the you know at the very front end of this revolution
2: that you're talking about? Well, first of all, let me give a shout out to your organization, meaning no labels, but also to your work over the years, Bill. Uh, which is, it can only be done if you have a government that tries to Solve problems rather than automatically make them partisan or ideological fights. Uh, for the time being, uh, things like the antitrust issues on Facebook, let's say, haven't become totally made partisan. I mean, you have a Josh Hawley on one side, and you know, you have people on both sides of that from both parties. But I fear that we become so polarized politically, which is why we need lo- no labels, why you know, the things you've led over the past 30 years have been important, so that people will come to some common sense solutions when it comes to regulating what gene editing technology we can use, regulating uh, intellectual property rights for the discoveries you make in biotech regulating monopolies to some extent. I certainly think that we have now reached the point where we're having trouble doing that with Facebook because of the paralysis in our government, and in some ways it's state attorneys general that are doing most of the work. In something like biotech, we do have a template for how it could be, but it re- it relies on people trusting Experts, which is not a trust that's in high supply right now It's called the Asilomar process and it began in the 1970s when not gene editing, but the bigger overview of Biotechnology was born and it was called recombinant DNA genetic engineering Paul Boyer uh, Berg Uh, Stanley Cohen, many other people invented the way to engineer our biology. This is well before CRISPR gene editing, but it allowed us to make all sorts of new drugs. Genentech was born by uh, Boyer and Cohen, the people who first did uh, this technology. and They were afraid that government would try to stop it. I mean, The Andromeda Strain was a popular book it had just been made a movie. So everybody thought, okay, the government's going to try to stop us. How do we head government off at the pass? And they created, uh, Silomar is a conference center near Monterey. They had a series of meetings at Silomar with bioethicists, press, politicians, as well as scientists. And they came up with a detailed set of rules of what type of organisms you would bioengineer and which type would, uh, you wouldn't do. And eventually that got adopted into our regulatory process, what the NIH would fund, what the National Science Foundation would do, what the FDA would approve when something came out. Uh, and that's because people delegated to the experts and it worked. I fear that just as our government has become, and politics have become more polarized, Our willingness to delegate things to the experts has also uh, been diminished. So, uh, there was an attempt with gene editing technology to recreate the Asilomar process. Uh, There is something that Peggy Hamburg, many of you know, is hoping to lead down to try to figure out what gene editing should be done. But if you look at other forms of biotech, like stem cells, when That became politicized. I worry that we're in a more politicized period and it's going to be difficult to get the rules of the road correct.
3: Let's take a look for a minute at the Buy Dole Act, which you and Senator Lieberman talked about a few minutes ago. It strikes me that we frequently make mistakes in public policy when we think of our policy options as a switch with only two settings, as opposed to a rheostat where Mm -hmm. different sorts of equities can be balanced. Uh, Let me just put a principle on the table that I haven't thought through to see how you react to it. If an important innovation is made possible by a public investment, why isn't there some sort of public dividend or public return on that investment? Doesn't mean that the inventor doesn't get to patent it, but it does mean, that there is a public share of the proceeds of that investment. It might even go to a fund that could be used to sustain a much wider range of innovation. You could create a virtuous cycle here. But why is it that the public invests billions and billions of dollars, creating, I would say, over a decade, trillions of dollars worth of revenue and wealth, and there's no public return?
2: I actually think that's a great idea, and we all have, you know, the model of private equity and uh, equity investment. And it would seem to me, and I haven't thought it through, but I've heard some discussions around this, that you could have a very simple process, which is everybody can get a National Science Foundation or a DARPA and NIH National Institutes of Health grant, and If you take it, somebody would have to figure out how you do the calculus, but the government gets a 10% equity stake. Maybe, as you say, it's not even the government, but some revolving fund as a 10% equity stake that becomes a great research and development fund. And I would still leave it in the hands of the inventors, innovators, researchers, or companies to figure out how to license it yeah sure to maximize the commercial rights to it but i would give the government both an equity stake and maybe even a veto power if somebody says all right the epipen or the vaccine for coronavirus the novel coronavirus uh, we now have the patent on it not only the government should get 10% but they should say it can't be manuf- it can't be sold for more than a you know, 15 percent return uh, on cost, some some control that government could have in return for the NIH or National Science Foundation grants. I do not know why that hasn't been done
1: uh, hey Bill and and uh, Walter, it's a great idea. What's at different times in uh, my years in the Senate talked about but never, Uh, never really accomplished. I'm trying to think. I think it's not quite on point, but in some of the enterprise funds that were set up uh, after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union to move American capital into some of those uh, countries, there there was a way that there was a a potential for return on public investments and also private investments that were made uh, through those, but um, it's, a, it's a really good idea. And we ought to tr- try to find uh, some legislative sponsors for that bill. Thank you.
2: It's, um, uh, you see it in this new stimulus or the $2 trillion, $2 trillion. bill, I think, which is um, if I have read it correctly, not that I've really read it, but read about it correctly, if you take one of the loan guarantees, and I think also with the grants, there is, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and others have a way to say that the government gets some upside. I don't think it's equity, but I think it's uh, some upside options for when you pay the loan back.
1: I think you're right.
2: I see that John Stout has sent something in the group chat saying, should uh, the Aspen Institute be taking this on? Well, if they do, I hope they'll invite me. I've had a (laughs) 19 year run at the Aspen Institute. I I think half the people on the screen I've seen there and the other half are probably annoyed that uh, they didn't get a chance to go out, but uh, uh, I ran the place long enough. So uh, I'll let them worry about it. Walter. Yeah, yep. uh, Gordon, how are you doing?
4: I'm fine. Um, there is an organization here in Chicago called Tempest that was started about three years ago. And it uh, took a, uh, one of our better scientists from the University of Chicago, Kevin White, and they're basically collecting data with the approval of hospitals, doctors, and patients hmm. on cancer patients and comparing the DNA of that patient, the medicine that was used, and consequently assigning uh, likelihoods that certain medicines can work better for certain patients with their DNA or RNA, whatever it is. And it's been highly successful. It's gone from about 10 people to a 1,000 in a couple of years. And it's working now with the pharma companies who, in a sense, pay for the data. Hospitals uh, get the data for free. Doctors who participate get it for free. So this company called Tempus, which is doing it by cooperating, with hospitals and patients is really moving very quickly into this area of data collection.
2: Well, that's good. And it goes to the point that Mel was making and about HIPAA and everything else. I've not heard of that. And I will say the fact that, you know, it's not that well known shows that there's a lot of room left for this to be done in my ideal world. All of that data would be public and there'd be open access to it. So every researcher and every, you know, lab at Tulane or anywhere else could look and use machine learning and all sorts of tools to say, what correlations can I find with this huge data set? That's the way it's done in China. But I don't know about Tempest and whether they consider it proprietary, whether they pay the hospitals for the data. But it would be probably hard to get people to Let loose that data Without being paid, but i'm not sure it's their data. It's our data. It's the patients And I just wish if you putting bills on the senate floor joe Uh, you know, we'll do one with the equity or upside of uh, nsf can get from its grants uh, but the other one would be The American people have the right to say, count me in with a simple check whenever they go to the hospital that says, make my data public in a public database that any researcher can use. Because it's my data.
5: It isn't the hospital's data. Well, I would certainly like to make my data public. It resides um, at uh, the uh, Wexner Hospital in in, uh, (laughs) Columbus, Ohio where my blood has been tested numerous times and my DNA is there over a period of years, I would think that would be uh, data with some value. And uh, I would like to know how to make that public. (laughs) So would I. This is
2: exactly what I'm saying. And Eric Lander has been pushing it. And every now and then I run into people say, oh, no, you can. No, if Mel can't do it and I don't know how to do it and whatever, it's not easy to just check a box and say, count me in. It would be a nice crusade to have, especially in the era of coronavirus, because we have no clue uh, on some of the basic questions. I mean, you're still infectious after you've had it. How long, you know, if I get all these tests and I get a coronavirus test, I get an antibody test and I get all these things, I want that data in some big database the way the Chinese have.
1: Hey, you know, I'll just say a word. Uh, incidentally, my relationship to the U.S. Senate today is a little like Walter's to the Aspen Institute. You have to so get I, I, you know, I had a great run there, sorry, but I don't. Uh, but uh, listening particularly on uh, uh, various points, but particularly about HIPAA, uh, if, if I may make an, uh, a share an obvious conclusion that I drew over time in the Senate, which is that legislating ain't science you know it's uh, it's a, a kind of it's law but it's artistry and the, the big problem stated simplistically is that um there could be a couple of uh really nightmarish cases about privacy let's say of medical data and they they lead to hearings and publicity and then a law is adopted and uh in a way it's aimed at uh, the metaphor i always always would come to mind at putting out a net to catch the problem. But of course, that either by lo- the, the generality of law or by the overreach of uh regulators interpreting the law or just mistakes, uh trying to, to do it in good faith with what the legislators wanted, the, the nets end up catching all sorts of stuff that they didn't, that the legislators really didn't. In, tend them to catch. And uh, uh, when I got to be, when you get to be a patient, when I was in the Senate and I hear this, uh, what the heck is this HIPAA thing? And the first, the first level of it is the paperwork. Of course, the doctors all complain. But then in, in your case, Mel, really, it's just, not, it's not in the public interest that you can't share that data. And I guess the only, uh, the, the way to, uh, Uh, deal with that problem maybe the best thing we can do in no labels is to put you in touch with one of our problem solvers in the house or senate and see if you can get them uh, to uh, be interested in this either uh, with uh, uh, legislation that fixes the problem or or perhaps trying to get the uh, regulations improved because this is and 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 now as Walter just said especially uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 and a uh, uh, pandemic and all that's going to follow it, I think the the the, 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 the balance the, the, uh, has switched and people will be thinking more about health and not overreacting on questions of privacy as important as they may be. So I think maybe we've taken uh, um, Walter Essexon's hourly rate is extremely high and uh He's working pro bono here today, so we shouldn't take advantage of him. I think we've hit five o'clock, and, and you're all busy too. I know, and so um, Walter, I want to thank you. You've been really stimulating uh, and very constructive. And I must say, my friend, your your ability to master different areas of human activity just uh, continues to impress me. I mean, it's a whole new area for you and all of us, and you just seem and are right on top of it. So I appreciate uh, uh, your uh, time with us very much, and uh, even if they don't invite you back to the Aspen Institute, we'll invite you to a No Labels meeting again.
0: Thank you. The biomedical revolution is here. Technologies like CRISPR could one day be used to cure some of our most hard-to-beat diseases. But everyone is understandably focused on the immediate challenge of defeating coronavirus. And you just heard about some of the technological and regulatory barriers that will need to be overcome to do it. Learn more about how No Labels is bringing together a coalition of leaders working on solutions during this unprecedented public health crisis at nolabels.org. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.